Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we're reviewing chapter 13 of Venture Deals. Chapter 13 is called Issues at Different Financing Stages. You know, one of the things about chapter 13, Aaron, that I really liked was one, the length of it. Yeah, that was my favorite part. It was only uh, three or four pages. I wish, and actually, I'm going to take that back. What I liked was the content because I thought the content was very germane to the things you and I have been discussing, the examples we've been using, and to the counsel we give our clients on a regular basis. One thing I didn't like, I'm going to take that back. One thing I didn't like was the length of it because I feel like we could have gone on for a very long time. I think they're just teeing us up to have a, a really good podcast. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. So let's get right into it. You know, the last couple of weeks, I think you and I have really hit on the process of raising capital, right? And it's what goes into it. It's building the pitch deck, putting together your script for your emails or your meetings with, with VCs and institutional investors. And I felt that this really reinforces that notion of the process of building your company and doing it the right way. Each step can be so important for the later steps, you know. So they talked here about seed deals, and then I think, you know, they're going to go into later stage deals. Seed, early stage, mid and, mid and late stages. We talked last week about FF and F, right? Yes. Friends, family, and founders, which is usually the round before a seed round. You generally don't see it at the, at the friends and family or friends, family, and founder stage. You usually don't see sophisticated terms. Right. Lots of which, com- which I think they in this chapter caution against because right. of you know the, sort of the precedential value yeah. that early stage terms can have so there's a reason why you don't see those sophisticated terms sometimes you just don't have investors who are asking for it but also if you get too far ahead of yourself early on then it's be hard to pull back or draw those terms back in later stage financings and you might end up inadvertently creating terms very early on that you now have to meet or exceed in later stages it could make things very difficult for you from a capital raising perspective. So let's use this as an opportunity to talk about the timeline of, of you know, raising capital. Maybe not the timeline necessarily, but the different stages. Right. So we talked about friends, family, and founders, and some of this will be redundant, but it's really important. A hundred grand, right? Fifty to a hundred grand, typically what you see. What types of terms or what types of paper are we seeing, Aaron, to to signify or to uh, you know to execute those rounds? I mean. Hopefully they're getting us involved. If they're not, then they're finding right. a form online. You know that you can find a safe agreement on Y Combinator's website, or you can go find a convertible note somewhere. Um, you know, if people aren't coming to us, that's where they're. That's the kind of paper we're seeing. You know, and convertible notes, safe agreements, great for those early stage rounds. A lot of time for those friends, family, and founder rounds. A lot of times people come to us and they don't even have any paper. Right. They have a, hey, my uncle deposited this much money on this date, or my best friend gave me $25,000. And I told him I'd give him right. X percent. Yeah. Which is not ideal, but it's okay. I mean, it's better than not bringing that information to us. So a lot of times when clients do come to us, they're preparing for a seed round, but there's some cleanup that right. goes on with uh, getting the documents in order from the previous round, the friends, family, and founder round, which we're absolutely okay with. So you go from that, then your next round is generally going to be a seed stage. And they talk here about raising $750 to a $1 million. Those are the examples they give. Really interesting here. So three, four, five years ago, you know, Aaron, when you first came on and joined over at VW, we were doing a lot of seed deals, but they weren't at this size. No. You know, they were $250, maybe right. $500. Now it feels like $500 is a small seed round in Dallas. Right. You know, $750 is pretty typical. I mean, heck, earlier this year, we did two deals where over a million dollars where we used seed level 
terms. Right. Now, when I say, Aaron, we're using seed level terms or, or seed terms, where are those coming from? I mean, typically what we see is um, seriesseed.com has some really good uh, resources. That was populated by some Fenwick and West attorneys mm-hmm. a few years ago. And so those, you know, they, they put out good documents that aren't as robust or comprehensive as the NVCA Series A documents, but it's a good starting point. I do think the SeriesC.com docs are a great starting point, or that term sheet is a great starting point. Um, I know we've broken down the term sheet ad nauseum, so if you're just hopping on, go back and review that chapter and listen to that podcast. I don't want to get too far into you know going through seed round terms again. But I think some of the effects of seed round terms they discussed here are really, really important. And, th- and this is stuff that we tell our clients all the time. So one, let's talk about runaway valuations too early. All right, Aaron, you've got a hot startup. You come from a very well-connected group of people. These guys are, maybe one of them has some money or runs a small investment fund and they're willing to invest a couple hundred thousand dollars and lead around. And you're able to raise a million dollars at a five, six, seven, eight million dollar valuation early on. Don't do it. Why not? Well, okay, so you'll take that money, you'll go deploy it, and then you're going to go have to raise money pretty soon after that. Chances are the more sophisticated investors that you go to in that next round that aren't, you know, buddies of yours that, you know, are are true investors aren't going to be comfortable with that sort of valuation. And so now you're going to be in a situation where Maybe you have a flat round, worst case scenario, you have a down round. And now, you know, the early stage investors, you're going to have to, you know, give them something for investing at such a high valuation. Very rare that a seed level company can really justify that sort of valuation. And then as Aaron mentioned, you're making it very difficult on yourself to hit what would be typical performance metrics, you know, and product kind of stage metrics, maybe even sales metrics, if it that's the right, if you're at the right stage for your company at that level of valuation, and then you get into a flat round or a down round. There was an episode of Silicon Valley about this two or three seasons ago, the runaway valuation. Now, they were dealing with much larger numbers, but still the same principle exists. And Monica actually went to Richard in Silicon Valley and said, don't do it, and here's why. And it's the same thing at these seed level, guys. If you raise money at too high of a valuation early on, one, you might be giving up more sophisticated terms than you need to, And two, you're going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for your next round. This is where counsel from your attorney comes into play. Talk to them. If they're experienced with these things, they can they can help you with it. Look, some deals are that much early on. Some life sciences deals, some real hot cutting-edge technology deals can justify those sorts of early stage valuations. But if you're just uh, if you're a SaaS business, you know, which or, or a mobile app, man, um, that's gonna be really hard to to justify at the next round. Especially if you're an experienced founder. If you've done this before and you've hit a home run before, then yeah, you might get a higher valuation than, you know, the 22-year-old kid who just graduated from college. Look, you should be raising about 20%. You know, we're going to target 15%. So if you're raising a million bucks and you have a $4 million pre-money, then your post is five. And to be candid, that's pretty high. I mean, that'd be a pretty strong company who could raise a seed round at four. But if you're at 750 and you raise at what's that at three pre and your post is three seven five, then there's twenty percent. That makes sense. Or maybe you're a little smaller, you're not that far along, then you raise five hundred and you raise it at two pre and your post is two five and now you've given up twenty percent. And those numbers make sense. And then you can go out and prepare yourself and be ready for the next jump, which is probably a two or three X multiple of your of your last round, for your pre money valuation 
to get ready for your Series A. So that's one issue is you know the, the runaway valuation. The second issue is a party round, and I'm glad they brought this up because we see this a lot as well. You know, a lot of people will raise a seed round and they don't know that they're doing this, but it's called a party round. You don't have a lead investor. I got a couple guys in for a hundred, a couple guys in for fifty, a couple people in for twenty five thousand. No one's really setting the terms. The company's setting the terms, and you think that that's beneficial. Because, hey, we got to set our own terms. The reason why this can hurt you is, one, a lot of times with a party round, investors are won't jump in until you have a significant amount in. And then, two, you end up negotiating with more people than you want to, right? If you have a lead investor, your lead will set the terms and everyone else just falls around along. But if you have a party round, there's a chance that you end up negotiating with three different $100,000 investors or they all want board observers, observation rights or they all want um, a side letter. And it just gets really messy. It is very, very messy. Yeah, if, if you can, I mean, and that's why it makes sense sometimes to offer, you know, major investor rights. So, you know, if you're going to raise, uh, let's say $300,000, if you want to, you know, make a major investor threshold at, uh, you know, $150,000, so you get somebody who's going to be leading the round, then that makes things a lot easier because you have somebody that's coming in and saying, okay, great. I want to take that lead lead investor spot and hear the terms that I want. And then everybody else will just fall in line. So let me piggyback on that. If you are going to do a party round or even if you're doing a large round, we have a lot of small investors. You have to set investment thresholds or else you end up with a situation where you have a writer first offer for every $10,000 or $25,000 investor. If you want to offer people the ability to participate in the next round, great. You can always do that. But the obligation to do so can make it tricky if you have a lead investor for your next round and they want to come in and close quickly and now we have to wait 10 or 30 days as we make this offer to our existing investors. The $25,000 guys, I know it's a ton of money, but once you're raising millions of dollars, it's really not. You don't want to be beholden to them. I know it's a terrible thing to say for your you know, Aunt Susan who invested $25,000, but as the attorneys who are helping you to navigate this deal, to push this through um, as, as simply or as you know, with, with as little friction as possible, the less people, the less cooks we have in the kitchen, the better, the easier it's going to be for the next round. So those are some of the early, the biggest issues we see early on is having too many people on the cap table, which is fine because you have to get there. Just don't offer them all, you know, exorbitant rights. Right. And then the uh, the runaway valuation. You know, this isn't something that I've seen in any of our deals, really. But one possibility is, yeah, offer up those rights, but make it somehow that you can repurchase those rights. Mm-hmm. You know, if if an early stage investor is saying, I want pro rata rights, I want, you know, XYZ rights. Say yeah, okay, but after a year, we can repurchase that right for some, you know, not a nominal nominal, value, right? But but you give them return, or just have them expire after the next round, right? And if you are going to give pro rata rights, especially for early stage investors, if you have to make it that the investor has to opt in for those rights to continue, those rights should sunset if they don't exercise them at the next round. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about what typical seed terms we see, some of the major ones, and then what we would like to see, what makes sense. So let's talk first about um, liquidation preferences. You want to give a quick recap on liquidation preferences? Uh, Liquidation preference means how the proceeds from a liquidation or a sale of the company are going to be distributed to the investors. They are split into either participating or non-participating. Participating means you get your liquidation preference, usually a 1x. So you get your original investment back. Then you share pro rata with the common stockholders when they get paid out after you get your 1x. That's essentially, a, you know, two bites at the apple. 
on a non-participating liquidation preference, that's going to be you get the greater of your 1x or you participate pro rata. And that's really viewed as sort of downside protection. So, you know, you will get, assuming there's enough money in, in this liquidation event, you will at least get your original investment back. So at an exit, if you have non-participating preferred, you just get your money back. Worst case scenario, best case scenario, you convert to common and take your pro rata ownership. 1x participating liquidation, you get to double dip. Now, the problem with giving a participating liquidation preference up early is every round after that is going to have that. It's very, very rare that you walk that back and you go to the more company-friendly, non-participating preferred. So what you want to do early on is really be insistent that if you are going to give up a liquidation preference, which I'm okay with for early stage, it's non-participating preferred. And I get it. You're desperate for money. You really want this check in. It's going to, you know, let you close this round of fundraising. You can get back to running the business. It's not worth it. You're going to, you're going to kill your next round. But a good investor will understand this. You know, we don't see these types of requests from the real micro VCs. I heard the new term nano VCs or anything less than 10 million. For nano VCs, micro VCs, they don't ask for a 1x participate, participating preferred at early stage. They get it. Cuban asks for a 1x non-participating liquidation preference for early stage deals. So your sophisticated investors understand it. Okay, Aaron, now let's talk about board control. Let me ask this. If an investor owns more than 50% of the common stock, does that mean that the investor controls the company? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And if the investor owns less than 50% of the common stock, does that mean the investor doesn't control the company? Not necessarily. So let me break down the three levels of board control, excuse me, three levels of governance inside a company. Then Aaron, you talk about board control for, for seed and uh, later stage raises. You have your day-to-day operational you know, operational management. And that's going to be whoever the president of the company is. The president probably decides which low level, lower level employees or contractors to hire or let go. The president decides uh, what the office hours are. The president decides which office supplies we're going to buy. And the president probably decides the sales direction or the sales strategy. And that's usually one of the co-founders. It's usually we're, one of the co-founders. talking about an outside person Correct. that we hire. Correct. The co-founder, the CEO. Sometimes people just call themselves founder. So that's day-to-day operational decisions made by generally a co-founder. Then you have your board level decisions. Board level decisions are some of the most important. These are generally your strategic decisions. Board level decisions, uh, a lot of times it's recommendations to the company, when to raise money, when to merge, when to acquire, when to be acquired. Board level decisions also usually deal with large numbers on the uh, on the budget. So the president might have authority over up to ten thousand or fifty or hundred thousand dollars in expenditures, the board would have to approve anything more. The board usually decides comp for the executives. Well, and also hiring and firing, hiring and firing the executives. Board usually decides uh, when to approve option plans. And at early stage companies, usually the the co founders or just the founders will decide when to grant options. Later stage companies usually have a committee, right, a board committee that, that would give uh, compensation grants or equity grants. So the board makes those fund those uh, excuse me those strategic large decisions, and then fundamental decisions are usually left to the shareholders. So shareholders have next to no input on the day to day affairs of the company. However, shareholders often elect the board at the different classifications will elect different board members. And then shareholders usually have the final say on selling the company or raising capital. So you want to talk a little bit more about those last two points, Aaron, the board and the shareholders and how they relate to early and mid-stage financings? Yeah. So typical board structure after a seed round of financing is going to be a three-person board. It's going to usually be 
one person that's elected or appointed by the lead investor in the seed round. And then usually if you have, you know, two or more co-founders, it'll be two co-founders. And in that sort of structure, yeah, the the founders usually control board decisions. However, it's not uncommon for there to be fundamental decisions that the investor says, yeah, you can do those things. Uh, you know, you make those board level decisions. However, if you want to do X, Y, or Z, the uh, board vote has to include the affirmative vote of the investor board member. Now, these are discussed as protective provisions, which was chapter, I'm looking it up, chapter five. Mm-hmm. So if you want to refresh on that, go back and listen to chapter five. Those protective provisions for a seed round, they're always going to be in there. It's just how much can we minimize them or make them standard? Again, the series seed dot com ones i think are really company friendly they're favorable in fact most term sheets i see have a few more on there once you get to an a financing or later the protective provisions are gonna get ratcheted up and the budget's gonna get real fine-tuned but that's because a seed company they have a projected budget but they don't have any historicals to base that budget off of when you're talking about investing you know giving a company a cash infusion of millions of dollars you want to make sure that they have a plan for how that money is not going to be used they're not going to go take an all company trip to you know bali and also once you once you're raising that kind of money it's not just the founder or the founders who are playing with that money, right? Or spending that money anymore. Right. Because there's a, there's an organization in place. You've got managers and directors and, you know, different people who are, who are making, you know, larger decisions for the company. And most of the time when you're going out and raising that money, you're going to say what that money is going to be used for. And they want to make sure that you're holding their feet are being held to the fire. So early on when you are. Raising capital, it's okay to have protective provisions. You're going to have an investor representative on the board. Once you get to an A round, you probably move into five members and you hopefully have three that are founders or elected by common, which is pretty typically represents the founders and then two investors, or you might have two investors, two founders or two common and one independent. But just be aware that the better you can get terms and this isn't necessarily you have to be really aggressive with this. I mean, I think the terms that are out there in series C are pretty fair. Uh, and they're in their ordinary. So the the closer we can be to keeping those series C terms, the better off your later rounds are going to be because the structure of your later rounds is incredibly tied to or dependent on the structure of your earlier rounds. And this also goes to the you know whole preparation for negotiations, which is look at the the typical terms of a term sheet and figure out what's important to you. Listen, if you don't care about board control, I don't agree with you necessarily, but maybe it's not that important to you and you think, okay, that's fine. The investors can run the board because I know that I'm going to be doing such a good job as CEO that they won't want to get rid of me. So figure out what's important to you and where you you can push on and where you can sort of ease off on. I think what we're looking for here for anyone out there who's listening or who's our clients, if you're listening, you're going to go talk to an attorney is understanding this, these terms will allow you to come and have the conversation with us about what is important to you, right? Because a lot of times our clients come in, they don't really understand this. So we have to take some time explaining this first, explaining what it is, and then we can explain how it affects them. And so that that takes some time to do. So the more prepared you are as a founder, the easier it's going to be for you to go have these higher level conversations with your advisors or your accountants or your attorneys about what the effect of these different provisions would be on your company. All right, Aaron, that about wraps up what I want to talk about for issues at different financing stages. If, if you're going to take one thing, you know, one, one thing to, uh, to leave with here, 
is that this absolutely is a process. The earlier stages affect the later stages. So you can't just be prepared for the later stages. Let's be prepared for the earlier stages. And then that'll tie into the later stages. You got any other closing thoughts, Aaron? I don't. Okay. Well, I appreciate everyone listening in. In closing, you can find our show notes on the website. There are, uh, look at our blog, and this will be posted there. You can find our show notes on the blog that has this podcast. Or if you go to the iTunes episode description, you can find a link there. Questions or comments, email us, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. Follow us at VelaWoodLaw on Twitter, on Instagram, at VelaWood. And then please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Office Hours podcast. We're doing a Venture Deals review. Last thing, Aaron, we were at 1,500 downloads this week. I'm looking for 2,000 next week, okay? Really? Not 2,000 more. Get to 2,000. Right. That's aggressive. Yeah, that is aggressive. Be nearly 500, I think, would be our best week so far, but I'm very optimistic. Putting a lot of weight on Nikki's shoulders. That's right. Our producer to get the word out there. Okay, thanks for listening. Talk to you guys next week. Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at